On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast, Scott Radley is sitting in for Rick Zamperin. We're going to be chatting about Joe Rogan and Justin Trudeau and their explosive interview that never happened. But artificial intelligence created it, and now people are saying, wait, if it was that believable, what else could be getting past us that we're not noticing is fake? There is a problem here. We're going to be talking about it. We'll be talking about the coldest night of the year walk. We'll be getting into a poll about socialism and who in this country likes it. The answer is young people by large numbers. They want it. They hope for it. Tipping is on the agenda today. We'll chat about that. And the Golden Horseshoe Athlete of the Year was awarded Sarah Nurse is your winner. We'll chat about that and how she won and why she won. All coming up. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. And what do you think of the way you handled the trucker protest in Ottawa? Do you regret any of that? The truckers uh, were racists, Nazis, uh, white supremacists, uh, fascists, sexists, misogynists, transphobic, anti-science, and uh, racists. If I had my way, I would have uh, probably nuked the Capitol uh, to be honest. Nuked the Capitol? Are you out of your mind? What do you think that would do to the rest of the planet? To mankind? Well, actually, uh, we prefer the term uh, humankind. All right, so that was an interview, interview, air quotes, between Joe Rogan and Justin Trudeau. Now, I think that everybody listening right now, when you hear that, says, yeah, okay, come on. There's something awry here. There's no way that our prime minister would have said that he wants to nuke the capital and, you know, on and on and on. However, other than the words themselves, it sounds very real. It sounds like that is Joe Rogan talking to Justin Trudeau, does it not? Let me bring in Carmi Levy. He's a technology analyst and a journalist. Um, Carmi, thanks for doing this this morning. Good to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. So this is a thing that got out there. Someone put it together and it's gone viral and a bunch of people were fooled, unsurprisingly, because it does sound so realistic, as I say, until you get to certain parts where I would hope that people's discretion and ability to distinguish between sensible and nonsense are there. But nonetheless, I heard this and the first thing I thought is not, oh, who's the idiot who put this together? It's if we can hear this, this convincingly, what else are we going to be fooled by down the road? Yeah, that's the worry here is that as artificial intelligence technology moves forward, uh, the ability for it to create deep fakes that look and sound exactly like the people they claim to be but are not um, becomes that much greater. And just like, you know, decades ago, Photoshop ignited a firestorm of controversy over, you know, can you trust what you see in the photo? Uh, now we're seeing the same thing applied to video and audio as well. That you know, you 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 see President, you know, former President Obama speaking, and it may or may not be him. You, you know, you hear Vladimir Putin declaring nuclear war on the United States, and you know, you know is it him? Gee, I don't know. And it's it's frightening because it it isn't just. Uh, you know, uh, like, you know, it isn't just the ethics of watching an artist uh, play on something on stage uh, or in a movie, James Earl Jones, uh, you know, handing over his likeness so that that will survive long after he does. 
Um, but it's really, you know, can our security be assured? Uh, can this touch off war? Can this right. touch off yes. economic panic if we don't look closely enough to sort of bear out whether, in fact, it is legit or not? That's the terrifying thing is those lines between real and not real becoming a lot thinner, a lot fuzzier. But, Carmi, and you say you're bang on that we do, if we don't look close enough, but the way technology is progressing, even if we look really, really, really closely I don't think the day is far off where we are simply not going to be able to tell. And to your previous point, and I mentioned this earlier in the show, today is the first anniversary of the Ukraine invasion by Russia. What if we saw a very realistic deepfake that was Vladimir Putin, again, air quotes, Vladimir Putin, saying that he plans to launch nuclear strikes? What I mean, we we that is that's terrifying that then someone overreacts because they can't confirm or deny it. But then everything's on high alert. You've got a Cuban Missile Crisis again. And I I hope I'm not being hyperbolic, but I think it's realistic. Oh, I think it is. And, and you're not being hyperbolic. I think that's just the way it is. And I think it's something that we need to recognize as an issue in society that as the technology advances, this threat will become more pervasive. That, yeah, like if you listen to this or if you watch this video, it's kind of like audio overlaid over still photos. But um, if you listen very closely, you can hear what's called artifacting. If you're really into it, you realize mm, this isn't quite there yet. It's like looking at a heavily photoshopped photo and realizing that it isn't exactly all it claims to be. But you're right, as the technology improves, that, you know, we'll get closer and closer to full fidelity. It'll get harder and harder to tell. And the sad truth of the matter is, is most people don't bother to even look or listen that closely anyway. So we're not paying attention when we, you know, watch a video in our social media feeds. Most of the time we're like, "Hmm, okay, share. Mm-hmm. You know, or respond in an outrageous way. We're not critical consumers of it. And as the technology improves, that's going to become an even bigger problem. We do need better frameworks. We do need better protect- protections from this. We need better legislation that holds technology companies and companies who use these tools to account so that the potential for abuse is minimized going forward. But make, let's be clear, uh, the genie is out of the box. It's not going away. And, uh, and we're only moving in one direction. And that's a terrifying thing to think. The mistake that the creator of this one made was going over the top and using that line about nuking the capital, because I, re- I, I do believe that if it hadn't gone so far past the point of reality or believability, a lot more people would have said, oh, I do think this might be real. And again, that's, that's, a, that's a creative thing. There's one other thing about this, though, and we look at this as, you know, something that can happen to world leaders. Carmi, th- there is a very realistic possibility that if, let's say, Car- someone didn't like Carmi Levy, they could create something like this that has you spouting racial epithets that how are you as an average citizen without even the proof of where I've been because I have a daily schedule, how are you ever going to prove you didn't say those things? Yeah, and we know that in social media, once it's out there, it's out there. And and, and once people have made it, up their mind, it's done. That, it, exactly. You know, it's, it's like printing a correction in the newspaper. No one cares about the correction online. Uh, and, and once the damage is done, it's done. There's no going back. And, you know, this particular video was a project of a company called Eleven Labs. They're a voice tech research company. And this is what they do. They develop text-to-speech software. It sounds a lot like humans. Uh, they can they can do voice cloning, synthetic voices. Um, so this is really little more than a technology demo, and that's probably why they went over the top. Is they wanted it to be 
clear this isn't real. Uh, but if you look at the comments in the original YouTube video that was posted, it's kind of terrifying. About I'd say about 95% of the people are like, yeah, yeah, I get it. It's, it's parody, whatever. This isn't real. But every once in a while, you come across a, mm -hmm. a comment where someone is like, yeah, you know, good on him. You know, he, like, like clearly they believe this. They believe that it's real. They believe in the fidelity. And that's what's scary is that the vast majority of us simply aren't being critical about this kind of thing. And so even, even a technology demo like this uh, can pass. What happens when someone has malevolent intent? We're literally not protected against that because most people simply can't take the time to care. Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. Uh, always a great job. Thanks for doing this. So great being here, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A poll has been done in different countries around the world, including Canada, asking about their thoughts on a variety of things regarding economic systems. And in Canada, those 18 to 24, by a large margin, say they want our system to be a socialist system. They want to get rid of capitalism. They want socialism. That's what the numbers are suggesting. From those of that age group, who, by the way, are now voting. So don't think that this is some sort of pie in the sky, could never have any impact kind of thing. They want a socialist system. Now, the question, there are two questions that come from this in this poll that I think are rather relevant. One of them is, what do they mean by socialism? Well, that question was asked, thankfully. And here's where this gets really complicated. Here's where this gets really a little bit confusing. I want to bring in Jason Clemens, who is the executive vice president of the Fraser Institute, who has helped with this report. Jason, thanks for doing this this morning. Morning. How are you? Not too bad. How are you? I'm excellent. Thanks. So listen, when we're, we were just saying about the polls showing, or this poll showing that there was this desire for socialism, but the first question becomes, well, what do you mean by socialism? And it seems as though that word can have multiple definitions and there's not a widespread agreement on which one people actually are looking for. That's right. So um, unlike almost every other poll that we've seen in the last decade or so, since we started to see the rise in support for socialism, our poll actually included the questions asking respondents to define it. Um, and so one of the important points is exactly what you've said, which is there's been an evolution in what people mean by socialism. So those of us old enough to have lost hair or had to turn gray, um, we remember what socialism was when there was the Soviet bloc countries where the government owned industries, owned companies, directed the economy centrally. Um, that's really not what people mean by socialism anymore. Uh, depending on the age group, you're getting anywhere between about 25 and 35% of people defining socialism that way. Most people now define socialism with, by uh, either the government providing more services or the government providing a minimum income. And that's across all four countries, uh, Canada, the United States, Australia, and the UK. And so clearly what we've seen is an evolution of what people mean by socialism, which um, 
I mean, the nature. simple the simple underlying thing, what they're saying is we want more government involvement and we want government doing more for us. That that's, seems to be kind of the simplest definition of what socialism is being identified as now. Yeah, that's right. I, I would say the, the underlying agreement when people are talking about socialism is they want more government spending, either on government programs and services or providing a minimum income. All right. Now the second part of the question, because once we've identified, okay, they're not really talking about, they don't, they're not thinking about completely removing capitalism from the equation entirely so the government controls everything. So the old idea of socialism, no, but much more government spending, much more government involvement, much more government directing stuff to them. But then you ask, how do you pay for this? This is, this is the part where, again, the, the, to me, the thing sort of falls apart a little bit because they don't seem interested in having more taxes to pay for this, except the usual, which is, hey, let's tax the 1%. Let's have a wealth tax and that will cover everything, which has that not been, I mean, look, I don't want to be bursting anyone's bubble here early in the morning, but has that not sort of been proven that if you just tax the 1%, that'll never come close to covering these kind of costs? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, and, and this is perhaps one of the most important insights of the poll, um, because we have had countries introduce wealth taxes, and Canada is a country, the United States is another country, um, that taxes the top 10% at a much higher rate than the rest of the population. So the idea that we have not tried these kinds of taxes where you either have a wealth tax or you have higher personal income taxes on just the top 10 or 20%, we've not only tried it, we're living it, and they don't work in terms of raising large amounts of revenue. I mean, to be blunt, there's just not enough people and there's not enough income if you're just looking at the top five or top 10% or top 1% to finance the kinds of programs that those who advocate for socialism want. And so the, the problem is you have an unworkable policy, which says we want a lot more government spending, but we don't want to pay for it. We want someone else to pay for it. Um, and I think quite interestingly, because a lot of people who advocate for that model tend to talk about the Scandinavian countries and that's just not the Scandinavian model. The Scandinavian model is if you want a lot more government spending, the middle class is going to have much higher taxes. And what the data is telling us from all four countries that we polled is people are saying, particularly middle class people are saying, we don't want higher taxes. Um, and so as I say, you, you've got an unworkable policy in terms of you, on one side of the ledger, you want a lot more spending, but you don't want the other side of the ledger, which says fine. You're going to have to have a GST of 20 to 25%. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Jason, it's, look, it's, it's a great, it's a really interesting study. People can find it online. It, it is like so many other things. Um, it's really nice to have this idea of how we want something to work in a utopia. Uh, often harder to bring utopia into reality, especially when we got to run. But if, even if you're going to do this huge tax on the wealthy, well, then guess what? The wealthy leave and go somewhere else. And you have even fewer wealthy then to tax to make this work. It's 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 a little bit complicated. Um, Jason Clemens, uh, Executive Vice President of the Fraser Institute. Thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, you should go read it. It's a really interesting piece to look at. Um, just the concept. What What does socialism mean and how would we pay for it? Because you can't have this discussion 
without nailing down those two things before you even get into it. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Tomorrow afternoon, evening, here in Hamilton, uh, if you're interested, you'll be able to participate in an annual event that um, uh, I've been hearing about for years, I've participated in, uh, that I've had another, I know a lot of people who have participated in it. It's for a great cause, and I want to tell you about it, and I want the person who is behind this to tell you about it. So if you are not doing something tomorrow, or even if you are and want to change your plans so that you can be part of it as well, uh, you can do so. It's called the coldest night of the year. Alice Plug-Bust is the executive director of Helping Hands. She joins us now. Alice, how are you today? Great. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate you coming on. I know it's bright and early and I know you're pre- preparing to freeze. So that's, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of a bit of both worlds, but the, the coldest night of the year is a great event. I've been hearing about this for a long, long time. I think most people in town have been aware of it. For those who don't know about us, about it, tell us about it. Uh, so coldest night of the year is an, an evening, early evening where we get to walk the street um, in support of people that are dealing with hurt, hunger and homelessness. Um, Here in Hamilton, uh, they've already been taking part for a while. Um, Up on the mountain, the mountain version is a fundraiser for Neighbor to Neighbor. And uh, they've been participating in uh, in the event for 10 years. Um, Downtown Hamilton, uh, we have two more events happening. One is for the Salvation Army uh, um, Booth Center, which is uh, downtown uh, right by... um, yeah, right downtown, right. and then um, and they've been participating for a couple of years, and then we at Helping Hand Street Mission on Barton Street uh, have been participating now for our second year. The I'm on your website, and there is a line on your website, and I want to read it because I think it's it's uh, there, there's a lot in this, and I want you to comment on what I read and and tell me what you get out of this line. Because the, the walk is along Barton Street, um, you write this, or someone has written this, there is much sadness on Barton Street as people daily live with the difficult realities of financial, social, and spiritual poverty. But there is also so much to celebrate as the community pulls together to share relationship, resources, and hope. I mean, there's a lot in that sentence. It, you're down there. What do you see down there? Barton Street is probably... Um my favorite street in all of Hamilton. And um, I'm not sure how many people would say that. Um, uh, we know that it's it's uh, over years gone through a lot of ups and downs. It used to be a very, very active street, um, especially when we had uh, industry, um, you know, active industry happening at Stelco, DeFasco, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, over the years has gone through a lot of hard things. Um, and we at Helping Hand Street Mission have been there for 20 years, um, just trying to support people who are dealing with exactly those three things, um, uh, f- financial poverty, social poverty, and spiritual poverty, understanding that, you know, people are whole peoples, which is why we talk about those three things, um, but realizing that people are dealing with brokenness, um, yeah, throughout their whole lives. But we also really talk about it as being together, right? Like we are, we're all in this together, we're all dealing with brokennesses of different kinds um, and but we at the same time all have something that we can contribute to society as well and so that's why we talk about beauty as well as we've been spending a lot of time um, you know 20 years down there uh, we've realized that um, you know even as many of our, our staff and our volunteers kind of come in from a distance to to 
provide the kind of support that we do. Um, uh, we're really just facilitators of the beautiful things that are already mm. happening down there, the community that um, people already are for each other. Um, and um, yeah, just the, the amazing people that live uh, on Barton Street and that come to Helping Hands for the support that we have to offer. Yeah, and you say favorite, and, and certainly that's a, that's, that's a great word for you. I mean, I, the, another word that I was thinking even as you were talking, it's a complicated area. It is a complicated mm-hmm. area. There's, you know, in all different ways. It's in, in an area that definitely at times in certain areas needs help. Yeah. Um, needs help. Um, uh, is also looking for help. Um, I, uh, at the same time as being the executive director at Helping Hands, I'm also on the Barton BIA board. Um, and, and we are looking constantly to the city and to others to come to us, to come experience us, uh, to realize that uh, we, you know, we've got a lot to offer and that uh, we want people to know about us. And so this, that's kind of what Coolest Night of the Year is, is great for as well. We're bringing um, uh, over 250 people um, into Barton Street to, yes, to support people dealing with uh, homelessness, with uh, hurt, with hunger, but also to come see our, our neighborhood and see uh, the great things that there are to offer down here as well. Yeah, It's called coldest night of the year. I do wonder, and again, you're, you're not the only one. There are other ones around, but I do wonder, do you really want it to be the coldest night of the year when you're out walking? <laughs> or are you saying, yeah, it's called coldest night of the year, but if we have a tropical breeze blowing through, we're fine with that. <laughs> exactly. Last year, I actually had somebody ask me, so how do you know it will be the coldest <laughs> night of the year? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, we we were actually, yeah, well, you know what? Last week, it was kind of warm, and we were thinking, hmm, it wouldn't be so bad to be walking that. Um, but, but then when it snowed the other day, and, and you know, we definitely want it to be uh, a feeling of coldness uh, for each of us just to help us as we, you know, walk and as we think and as we consider, as we pray, whatever it is that we're doing as we're walking, that we really are, you know, thinking about the fact that uh, there are people um on Barton Street across our city that that deal with that, that kind of cold or even way colder um, on a on a daily basis. And, uh, and so, yeah, cold's yeah. not a bad thing for us. Well, and I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say that while we're laughing about it, and sure, it would be lovely if you could do it in shorts one year. Um, <laughs> the reality is part of this is is designed to make you feel the cold so you understand what people are dealing with, right? There, I mean, there's an experiential component to this. Otherwise, you could do it in July. Exactly, yeah. And that's why that's why it's being done uh, in February every year because yeah the chance that you get the coldest night is probably the highest in February. If people want to participate, um, is there any? Um, is there? And now I know that there's different issues like Barton Street, obviously, as you say, is a little different from the Salvation Army Booth Center right downtown or up up on the mountain. But if people want to participate, why? Where would they choose? How do they choose which one they want to go to? Or is there any difference? Or do you just choose based on the charity? Or how would you tell people to choose which one to go to? Um, it definitely is based on the charity, uh, based on your location as well. I would say um, as much as Helping Hands, uh, you know, loves to have everybody come to ours, um, I would say choose the one that uh, you feel most connected with, whether you work close to it or live close to it um, um, or have, you know, other kinds of relationships um, in, in that area. Um, all three um, charities are um, definitely uh, ones that can use the support. Um, and um, yeah, it really, to me, it really is about making this a part of your everyday life as well, right? So if you live or work um, 
close to one of those spaces, that's where you should go because that's uh, when it will definitely impact your life uh, going forward from uh, tomorrow evening as well. Uh, people can find more about the CNOY, coldest night of the year. CNOY.org is, uh, is a website where you can find out more about this if you are interested. Alice, a plug abuse. Thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're hearing phrases like tipflation and tip creek. Tipping has become something that, well, it, well we always tipped. And most people did anyway. We always tipped when we went to a restaurant or went to a place and did, when we got service, usually restaurants, but other places too. But now people are seemingly getting a little bit tipped out because they, you go to pick up food at a takeout place and they hand you the debit machine and it says, would you like to tip? And you're like, well, wait a second. Normally I haven't tipped when I come and pick it up myself, but you kind of feel guilty now because you're standing there staring at the person who's going to take this thing back. And if you put no, then it's like, well, you're cheap. And is it still 15% we're supposed to give, especially with COVID and all the service workers who suffered through that? Uh, absolutely. Is 15% now sufficient or are we supposed to give 20 or 25%? And what if you get really not good service in those rare times? Are you allowed to not tip at all? These are all realistic, reasonable questions that are being asked. Angus Reid asked all about this and found out that a lot of people do have thoughts on tipping these days. And one of the things that they would like to see most is an end to tipping. They would just like to see the value of the tip that you would have normally given rolled into the service price so that there's just one total cost and you don't have to think about it. Jarrett Young, a CEO of Equal Parts Hospitality, joins us now. Jarrett, how are you this morning? I'm great, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. Thanks for taking some time to talk about this, because clearly coming out of COVID, and I, I think that may have been the impetus for this, this has become a real talking point about what do we do with tipping, what's enough, who do we tip, where do we tip, and then do we just, as I say, roll everything into the price. What, what's your thought? on that last idea, that we don't have tips anymore, the companies just put the 15 or 20%, whatever it is, into the cost, and then it's just given to the worker after. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's important to note that, you know, I've been in the restaurant business for decades now, and this conversation has definitely been uh, a topic for, for many, many years. And I think you're right, the pandemic has certainly uh, accelerated um, this topic. I also think that the pandemic has accelerated our relationship with food or our changes with our relationship with dining. So we're experiencing things that require, require in quotation marks, tipping more often throughout the day than we ever have. So, you know, to answer your question, in theory, I, I have no issue with service included. Um, I, think, I think we have to be very careful that we don't simplify what that means. Um, what do you mean and, by that? You know, well, a perfect example would be currently, you know, our, uh, we are seeing dining trends where instead of guests coming in for a three course meal um, because of the prices, it's a two course meal or instead of a bottle of wine, they will have a glass of wine instead or they'll, they'll uh, share an appetizer. I think after the last three years, Canadians want to go out and they still want to dine, but because of inflation, their habits are absolutely changing. So I find it interesting that on one hand, our dining habits are changing, 
But then this idea that we are going to increase our prices at least 20 percent, the two things are at odds with with one another. Yeah, because one of the things that people will sometimes do is before they go out, they will sometimes check a, a menu online or something. And if you have incor- if you're a restaurant, you've incorporated the tip price. I don't think people think about the tip when they look at the menu beforehand. But if you now incorporate fifteen or twenty percent, that may have an impact on whether people decide to go. Absolutely, and I think the larger discussion here is if you are a single restaurateur and you are the only one that increases your prices at least 20%, uh-huh. yeah. then, then you're, it, it's creating this competition, right? A $20 salad, in theory, would be $24 or $25, when you can get the same salad next door or across the street for 20 And again, I, I'm simplifying that because it's not just a 20% increase on one dish. It would be a 20% increase at least on every single item that you would order, right? So... A dinner for two, and again, I only see it through the lens of, you know, upper end casual dining, uh, in service dining, where a hundred dollar bill would at least cost you twenty dollars. Now, we're assuming that a twenty percent increase in prices actually makes up for the loss of gratuity for the servers, and the two things aren't equitable. Mm-hmm. A, a busy restaurant in a Canadian city, a server on on a busy night could make, with tips included, two or three times their wage, right? They, are, they could be making 30 to 40 to $45 an hour in a busy restaurant. So if you, as a restaurateur, try to individually change that, then you're potentially not losing, you're not only losing guests, but you're also potentially losing great employees. What about the idea One of the things we've seen, and I alluded to this at the top, one of the things we've seen is there have been places where traditionally people have tipped over the years. It does seem that now there are many more places where we're being asked to give a tip. And I I do think that's got something that's come out out of COVID where people lost money and it was very difficult. Is that making people crankier about this whole idea too, where they say like the other day I went and picked up some takeout food. And maybe I'm just really cheap. I, I don't know, Jared, but I, I was thinking, well, we, at the front counter, what you did was grab a bag from the counter and hand it to me. I'm not sure that's worth the same tip as someone who served me a meal for the same thing. So are we, are we murkying the waters a little bit here too, by having too many asks for too many tips? Yeah, I think you raise a good point. The, the frequency or the interactions that we have throughout the day that are requiring us to tip has increased exponentially, right? But because of the pandemic, we are going to online platforms, online ordering, takeout. I mean, mechanics are providing a service. Some of them ask for tips as well. So I think our definition of service has probably expanded, yes, right? Yes. Now, as a restaurateur, and I'm, I'm sure there's a couple people that would hate for me to say this, but, you know, one could argue that, um, you know, having somebody make your latte is just as intricate uh, and takes just as much time as opening a bottle of wine. So are those two services different? Mm. Yeah, no, these are, these are, we got to run. These are fantastic points. And as I say, it, it becomes really difficult. And I think you've touched on it just because there are so many times we're being asked to tip now that I think we're becoming 
conscious of, well, is this worth the money? I don't know that that's a, com- a, a good place necessarily to be, but I think that's what's happening now. And it's going to create this conversation to go on and on about where should we and how much should we tip. Jared, I wish we had a lot more time. It's a fascinating topic. Uh, Jared Young, CEO of Equal Parts Hospitality. Thanks for doing this today. Thanks, Scott. Have a great day. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Golden Horseshoe Athlete of the Year Award was presented last night. And Sarah Nurse, the Olympic hockey player, is the winner of this year's, well, actually last year's, it's for 2022, was the winner of last year's award. She beat out the other finalist, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, the NBA star, all-star from Hamilton. It's a remarkable story. And Milan Borjan, the goalie for Canada's World Cup soccer team from Hamilton. Remarkable story. First time back to the World Cup in 36 years. Now, Sarah is down in Tampa. The uh, Professional Women's Hockey Players Association has their Dream Gap Tour down in Tampa today, so she was not able to join us. But stepping in, equally athletic, a future probably winner of this award herself, a member of the committee, Terry Pekoski. How are you? (laughs) I wish, Scott. I'm all right. How are you? I'm doing okay. So take us through this, because there have been other years when there have been good candidates I don't know that there's ever been a year when you look at the three people and you say every single one of them, you could make a very, very compelling reason for each of them to win. How did this end up getting decided? What was the discussion like among the committee members to come to this decision? You know what? The crazy thing is it wasn't just a discussion among these three athletes. It was a discussion among about, you know, I want to say anywhere between half a dozen to 10 athletes who were all in the same ballpark. I mean, the accomplishments that were made by Hamilton area athletes this year were just insane. And it was, I mean, you're right. It was the the most difficult decision we've had to make since I've been on the committee, which has been six or seven years. Um, and for people who've been around a bit longer on the selection committee, they, they said it was the, you know, the hardest decision they've ever had to make. Um, so there was some discussion, but it, it kind of gets to a point where, <laughs> Their accomplishments are so big that you you just put it to a vote, right? And everyone sort of writes down the, you know, you you take a bit of a flyer and <laughs> you go with your gut and write down um, whoever whoever you think. It's just sort of, I, I it's really hard to describe. You can probably guess that by me sort of struggling here. Um, well, there there are. So you mentioned about a bunch of the other people. So Shay Gilgis Alexander, Milan Borjan, and Sarah Nurse were the three finalists. Mackenzie mm-hmm. Hughes won a tournament on the PGA Tour, which is incredibly, unbelievably difficult to do. There are lots of professional golfers who never do that. He didn't even become a finalist. Uh, mm-hmm. Sharon McKinnon, she won the Kona Ironman Triathlon, the one in Hawaii for her age group. Uh, again, remarkable achievement, not, in the, not a finalist. Eleanor Harvey, number three in the world in fencing this year, beat the world number one, not a finalist. Max Turek won the University of the National Cross Country uh, Championship. That We got the top defender, the top Canadian in the Canadian League Basketball League, the top defender in the national in the Canadian Premier League Soccer, top defender in the National Lacrosse League. I could go on and on. Yeah. Um, they didn't make it. No, they didn't. And you know what I can speak to is sort of how I reached my decision because I, I voted for Sarah to win the award. Um, and what really, you know, for, for me put her over the top was the the championships and the level of those championships. So it's always a challenge for our committee because you get a lot of nominees who've won championships at different levels and in different sports. And how do you judge one against the other for her? 
she couldn't have achieved more. Um, she won a world championship. She won an Olympic championship in that Olympic tournament. She broke Haley Wickenheiser's scoring record. Um, it was pretty much the best she could do. And the other finalists and the other athletes that were in the running didn't quite hit that standard. So for me, that was kind of what, what guided me, but it's always so challenging, especially when you're comparing people from such different backgrounds and different sports and, and different ages. And it's, yeah, it, it is really hard. Before I let you go, we got to run here in just a second. How much does it matter to the credibility of the award? Now, I believe it does, but I'll let you say whether you think so or not, that you don't give this as a nod to someone for anything other than the best performance that it's, you know, we don't say, oh, well, this year we have to do an amateur athlete because it's been three years of pro athletes or whatever. How important is it that it just has to be the best person for this award to be plausible and credible and believable? Well, I think it's important for the award in its its current state. Um, the, the Golden Horseshoe Athlete of the Year Award right now recognizes the top athlete from the Hamilton area, from the Golden Horseshoe area. We have discussed perhaps moving forward because we have such immense superstars coming out of Hamilton right now and succeeding in sport, um, many of them at a professional level. Maybe we introduce another award in the future that is specifically for athletes at the amateur level. Um, but right now, I mean, I think we have to sort of stick with the the purpose of the award and, and fulfill that uh, in our, our votes, which is why you see the finalists that you see, especially this year. And it's why, I mean, year after year, Shea Gilgis-Alexander has been either a winner or a finalist. Um, Kia Nurse, not not even in the, I mean, the funny thing is we didn't even, we got to run. We didn't even mention Kia Nurse this time and she's no. been a finalist or a winner, I think four times, five times. So uh, listen, Terry Pekoski, member of the committee for the Golden Horseshoe Athlete of the Year. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. It is, uh, look, it's a great award, and I do think that the credibility of the award, and I credit them for this, I credit the, the committee for this, it has not been one of these things where they say, oh, it's time for one of this sport, or an, it's just been the best athlete, and that's, under the current format, that's the way it has to be if this thing matters. As soon as you start giving it as a nod to someone because it's their turn, doesn't matter anymore. That's my position. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.